there. This show contains material which a truly free society would neither fear nor suppress. The language and concepts contained herein will not cause eternal torment in the place where the guy with the horns and pointed stick conducts his business. Hello. Hey, what's up? This is Rich Wilgus. John Tellerico. And we are recording live from the Cafe Domenico in scenic uptown New York. It's, what is it, Sunday? It's about 2.22. Yeah. And there's like a banging crowd here, and we're having oh so much fun. And here's where I steal from Larry King. And we would like to welcome to our microphones, Pete Bianco. Thank you. (laughs) Uh... It's it's really nice and drizzly out too. The air is very moist. It's a good day to be here then. Yeah, definitely. It's a good day to be on the inside with a warm cup of coffee or a cup of tea. What are you guys drinking? I've got hot water with cinnamon in it. Okay, you rebel. <laughs> I've got a mostly empty cup. John's got a mostly empty cup and I'm drinking the decaf green tea. We're over the top with the craziness tonight. <laughs> it's just silly. It's just silly. I like your uh, intro warning. <laughs> Uh, once again, stolen from Frank Zappa. We don't do anything original here. Uh-huh. We just—it's all derivative. We steal from everyone liberally. So was that Frank Zappa speaking? That was John speaking. That was me. Oh, so you're you're impersonating? I wasn't. I wasn't impersonating anyone. I think it was Wallace Shawn that I was impersonating. We originally went for the Joe's Garage. Hello there. Central scrutinizer kind of vibe from the Joe's Garage record, but it wasn't working for us. So uh-huh. then we John did this silly voice. Hello there, you know. So. Uh-huh. We went with that. I love the way Molly's just banging dishes around back there and breaking That's things. Great. It's ambience. Yeah, John was going for ambience, and I just kept imploring him, do we have to do this? Because to me, it's just background noise I can't get rid of. <laughs> because you're a sound Nazi. <laughs> I am a sound Nazi. I just kicked somebody out of the loft here, too, so meh. Anyway, Pete is a local filmmaker. I met him here, actually. Yes. With some uh, mutual times. friends. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. Well, there was that one time at the video. Well, never mind. Um... And I was amazed in between the first time I met him and the second time I met him, I learned that he's like a filmmaker and he actually teaches film and he's a film major and he's got all kinds of like film everywhere associated with his name. Correct. <laughs> so uh, I just started a f- filmmaking class here in Utica. Yeah. Uh, we're down on in Steben Park, 18 Steben Park. Yeah. I have eight students. And you got eight? Yeah. Wow, that's very impressive. Um, I had 17 people interested, and out of those 17, uh, eight people committed to the class. That's pretty awesome. So you had like, a, a, uh, like an intro, and, and it was open to the public, and 17 people showed up, and only eight stayed? Um, it was open to the public, and um, the way I advertised it was one month before the class started, I made flyers. And then I started putting up flyers, and then I started talking about it on the radio, and then there was some other way I tried to communicate. I, I started going up to people when I saw you that night, Rich. Yeah, well, I encouraged you. Hand yeah. out those flyers, you know, go, go meet some people, because I think it was, I would have loved to have taken the class myself, but for lack of time. And it's affiliated with the uh, school? No. It's just on your independent? Completely non-affiliated. Excellent. It is excellent. And you are a film major, right? Even you have a four-year in film? Yep. I got my uh, bachelor's degree in cinema. From? SUNY Binghamton. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit more about your ideas, your, your concepts for filmmaking, because uh, you and I have talked about film at length. We 
often go to the, that film series down there at that museum and see each other there every once in a while. Mm-hmm. But you don't, you don't make films like that, do you? Narratives. No. no. Uh, the type of film that I make would be described as experimental or avant-garde. Uh, what was the first part of the question? <laughs> I don't remember. What did I say, John? Who am I? Why am I here? There's a phone ringing. I think it's for us. I'm not here. <laughs> Anyways. No, talk about the kind of films you like to make. Uh, so some of what I'm hoping to achieve through my films is to um, bring a resensitization of senses because I feel that in most mainstream cinema, we are so overstimulated that it's desensitizing us. So it's my attempt to resensitize through sensitivity to the environment that's around me. Elaborate on that a little bit. I mean, do you mean just people are getting like desensitized to gore, for example, by watching a slasher flick, so they've become numb to those kinds of experiences? I mean, is no, that what you I mean not necessarily just gore. You and me watched the uh, Woody Allen film the other night, Match Point, and um, even in something like that, what I noticed all the time is it's always these close-ups of people's faces, and there's no other visual information to sink your teeth into. So. Um, I felt like it was very uh, much in a void or empty in that way, so it wasn't sensitive to what was going around. The The point of that film was, was just to have you focus on the drama between these people, so it, it mm-hmm. wasn't important for them to pick up on details of the mundane. Right. It wasn't like in a place. You couldn't place it anywhere. You couldn't place the, the environment Anything else going around? Is that what you, you mean? It was a it was a specific environment, but there was no, it, the the way the environment was filmed wasn't very al- alive. You were almost uh, your eyes were directed to be on the people all the time. Most of the time, they were in the center of the screen, and it was just these close-ups where I could look into their pores. Well, I mean, it's a I, that would be a typical Hollywood narrative in general. I mean, when you've got Scarlett Johansson in a film, I mean, you've got a pretty face; they're going to want to shoot her face, but you don't. You choose not to do that, so you do you do other things. Right, like I'll film a piece of garbage or <laughs> a shadow or a crack in the sidewalk. Um, I, I got a one film where I'm looking straight down into this um, coffee cup where the coffee's um, almost all the way gone and sitting on a board in the field, and um, the wind is blowing these weeds around, and... Uh, because the film is um, pixelated, which which means um, it's not natural time, but it's time with pieces missing. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, the way that the shadows move and the reflections inside the cup move um, become alive in this way that is um, different than a normal observation of the situation. Wow, I'd have to see that because I have not seen any of Pete's work yet. But I think you mentioned you have some on VHS. I do. And I think we'll be able to do a transfer and get a, a sample of uh, your work online. Oh, Maybe in, in the next week or two, if we can do that, tra- if John and I can do the transfer, mm-hmm. if you can get us the tape, we, we'll re-edit the show uh, posting on our blog with a link. We'll find a place to put the file, and mm-hmm. we'll let people see a sample of your work if you're cool with that. Yeah, that'd be great. And then I can steal that from you and put it on my website. Absolutely. Sure. You can just download it and do anything you want with it. Excellent. So yeah. tell us more about the class. Um, what do you do? What's the process? I mean, you know, how often is it? Those the, kinds of things. The class is 21 classes. 
mm-hmm. over a span of two and a half months. We meet twice a week for um, three hours at a time. Wow. So it's an intense workload. Uh, so we're meeting twice a week for three hours at a time. Then on top of that, in your free time as a student, then you're asked to be out filming things with the camera. And um, then on top of that, you're being asked to do reading and uh, some other side projects and also do editing of your film. So it's like a real course. Yeah. yeah. It's like school. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's the format? Super 8. Excellent. Yeah. I think I've never shot on, on Super 8 before. Um, when I was in school and I did some film as well, film studies, I did 16 millimeter. Uh-huh. And we did, um, we did the development of the film and everything. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, it was great. But I've never done Super 8. Mm-hmm. So... What's the difference? I mean, I've, I've never even seen anything other than a Super 8 camera. Is, is, is it a cost thing for you, working on 8 as opposed to 16? Or is there something about the, the media itself, a quality, there's, an inherent quality to it? There's a few different things about it. Right now, the quality of Super 8 is still, um, the resolution of it is still uh, better than high-definition television. Mm-hmm. So, but 16, the resolution of 16 is even better than Super 8. Um, for two and a half minutes of 16 millimeter, that's going to cost you $60. That includes, that's the cost of the film and the cost of developing the film. Mm-hmm. For um, about three minutes of Super 8, that's going to cost you $20 for the film and the processing, or maybe a little more than $20. Right, right. And what kind of cameras do you use? Um, I have all different types of cameras, and that's another really interesting thing is like you get the camera, and then you'll have to figure out. Every camera is completely different, so you'll have to, uh, you know, figure out all of the different features with it. And they usually don't come with a manual, <laughs> so it's a lot. These are vintage cameras, right? Uh, I don't think Super 8 cameras are even being produced any longer. But there's a, enough supply that um, you know it's, it's easy to get a camera, and uh, the film is still being produced. And you have a small collection of them, right? I mean, you're, you are the, the equipment kind of supplier for the class. I'm pretty much everything for the class. I'm the janitor. I'm the <laughs> person that orders the films. I'm the person that projects the films. Are um, you in the films as well? I, I teach the class. I'm not in the films. Uh, I, I lecture. Um, I teach all the technical aspects of how to use the camera. I'm the repairman for the camera. I'm the repairman for the projector when it breaks down. <laughs> well, and as, as I and, think... And I make the coffee. From pre- well, or yeah. Molly does if you're here. Yeah. And, well, from a previous conversation we had, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, you don't, John said, are you in your films, but you don't actually have people in, in your films, or at least not in this class. For, let's see, originally my idea was that there was going to be no people in the films at all. Right. Except I would give them one exception, and there'd be one film where they could go wild and get people in, in the film get now, wait a minute system. I've seen those videos Girls Gone Wild you're not making those are you <laughs> definitely not no okay no. well maybe you should because there's a lot of money in those yeah this is definitely not something that you do for the money so anyway I'm sorry you, you know people in your films and there was one exception uh, yeah and then so I was going to allow them one project where that they could do what they want but now I see that people are hungering f- for doing different projects and um I'm thinking of changing the requirements of the um, assignments because I see that people already have these um, some ideas that they want to work with and they're very excited about them. So I want to try to allow their creativity to come in. I also want to challenge them by putting up certain restrictions. 
So I'm trying to find a balance between those two. Well, I, I think that's a pretty wise choice because I don't think if people want to express themselves, why would you want to inhibit that? You know, geez, I want to make a film with a person in it. You know, why would you really want to inhibit that? I mean, I mean, there certainly are reasons, and they're the ones you mentioned before. But at the same time, that's you know, why limit them? You know, right? Well, I can tell you why you'd limit them. Tell me. Because, well, I, I did some uh, teaching as well up at Syracuse University. Um, go Orange. Go, yeah, go Orange. Big East winners. Oh, that's right. Yeah, they won four <laughs> unlikely games in a row. Anyway. Wow. Right. And, Not and, much actually in the way of sports fans here, but, you know. <laughs> Well, I'm a little bit of a sports fan, but well, uh, I'm not yeah, a rabid but, sports fan. But we don't have a sports podcast. But that was interesting. They won those four games in a row. Doing great. Rock on. Anyway, tell us why. And, and I was in um, the School of Visual and Performing Arts. I did animation, uh, computer graphics. And when I was teaching, what I would do is I would force the students to be completely limited. I would, I would give them only a certain set of tools to work with and give them strict limitations so that they wouldn't have to worry about coming up with this great narrative, this, this great epic mm-hmm. film that they could work within these confines and learn to deal with those things because I think a lot of them came into the classes with some preconceived notions of becoming the next great director of Hollywood films and they wanted to do something just like Hollywood. So I took all of those things away from them and said, okay, now you're left with yourself. Mm -hmm. Show me what you've got. So were you teaching experimental filmmaking also? I was teaching um, almost... Almost like experimental filmmaking, but it was computer graphics animation. Okay. So they'd have to do animations, procedural animations, do some programming, and come up with a strictly formal type of... And when I say formal, I mean shapes and forms. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, they, they came in thinking that they were going to do a narrative with a, like a story of mm-hmm. beginning, middle, end. And I would say, no, no, take that away and just show me what you've got. Put together a composi- composition, a physical composition, and uh, do something visual. Do not don't do a story. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, that's yeah, certainly I, a great I certainly reason. wanted to limit them. With yeah. Well, I, yeah. I, I mean, I can't compare this to anything but what I've done in audio production, and you know, setting a, a, a certain guideline or a certain uh, um, what's the word I want? I don't want to use the word limitation, but setting a, a goal of you know doing a project in a certain way without using these crutches. You know, mm-hmm. it's very easy, and narrative is easy to make. They're made every day. It's all most people do, right? I mean. Well, I mean, it's it's something that you can you can really grasp because that's what you're exposed to, um, but I don't necessarily think it's easy to make. I well, think making a good one's really no, tough. no, I don't I don't mean that in that sense of the word. But most people would probably dive headfirst into doing a narrative if they got a camera. They'd put their friends on it, right? So it's probably yeah, it's a useful tool to and teach so, them other things. So to do narrative is just kind of like taking cinema and then limiting it to literature. Yeah, exactly. That's what it's doing, definitely. So, in, instead of that, we're liberating cinema to be more than that. Liberating? Well, yeah, that's what I always found, is if, if, you've, if you've got a huge set of limitations, it is kind of liberating, because you don't have to think about all the other things that you usually think about when you, when you uh, bring yourself to a project. Well, I, I have an analog for this, actually. Um, poetry. Haiku. There's a very strict set of limitations mm-hmm. in writing haiku, 575. And because it has specifications, I find it pretty easy to write. I like writing in haiku, you know, and uh, it's something I enjoy doing. Generally, and having those specifications. too. Yeah, limericks. <laughs> you're in a lot of them. And, um, but having specifications, and I, I make that as an engineering joke, you know, haiku has specifications, so it's fun to write. But, mm-hmm. yeah, those, that, that syllabic you know, structure you have to follow uh, is kind of liberating. I like it. I think having these uh, limitations allows you 
to have these walls to push off of and to, to gain uh, some type of friction to propel your ideas. That's a good way of putting it. Definitely. Do you want to play some music? We should play some music now. Um, Do you want to play some good music or crappy music? Well, we got a couple. And, uh, John didn't like one of them, so I guess we're going to play what John would call the good music. And uh, <laughs> I do want to play the crappy music eventually, though. And it, actually, I don't think it's crappy at all. And if my friends are out there listening because they are aware of the program, <laughs> the, the guitarist in that band, John, this turned out not to be one of John's fav- favorite songs on the record, but it actually is my favorite song on the record. But we're not going to play it at all, John. I'm talking to John out from Access Y. But we're going to play something he's else He's not even now. here and you're talking to him. I know, but he's, he knows about the show. And he oh. goes, oh, it's a podcast? I'll download it to my iPod. So now he's going to start listening. And you just insulted him. <laughs> I'm sorry, John. So I think now we're going to play. Myself. What are we going to play? So How Ridiculous? So Ridiculous? What's it called? How by the Fiends? Yep. How Ridiculous by the Fiends. The Fiends. I love those guys. They rock. They're ridiculous. Completely. <laughs> Does that song meet your approval, John? I accept. John accepts. You don't have to like everything. No, Just because I don't, don't like it doesn't mean it's bad. No, that's true. Actually, there were a couple songs that John has selected over the, the months that, uh, that I didn't like, too. T- they tended to be blues-based. I'm not a big blues fan. Not enough movement. Not enough... Uh, you know, three chords and a couple of pentatonic scales just don't do it for me, you know? And now you're bringing this up? I think, <laughs> I think it depends on the blues. Uh, well, you know, there are a couple of uh, forms of blues I like. I, well, as I said a minute ago, I like a lot of movement. That's why I like J.S. Bach, you know, a lot of intricate uh, weaving harmonies. 
And I, I like guys like Robin Ford. I like guys like Stevie Ray Vaughan. But when you get into that really old school Mississippi Delta blues uh-huh. with like two chords and a slide on an old, out of tune, unintonated acoustic, it just drives me nuts. Have you heard the song um, Crazy Blues by uh, Mamie Smith? I don't know. If, I don't think so. Possibly no. the first blues song ever recorded. When? Uh, 1927, I think. Wow. No, I'm not, I may have heard that. And I, I, There's two guys who play here called the LaMail Brothers who are big blues aficionados. I'll mention it to them uh-huh. and see if they're familiar with it. But. It starts with this uh, very loosely uh, syncopated trumpets and trombones. and It sounds like the whole uh, performance is about to fall apart. Really? It's like that New Orleans jazz yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. You know? I love New Orleans jazz. Yeah. yeah. You remember that band that uh, we... Uh, we talked about uh, they, Los Hombres Calientes. They came here, mm-hmm. and um, they're they're a jazz band from New Orleans. But at the end of the show, the horn players just walked around doing that old school kind of New Orleans jazz thing with just marching, marching with uh, you know two trumpets and trombone. It was really cool. I always liked that form of music. But anyway, filmmaking. You got a website too, right? What's the domain for that? www dot open film eight Number, eight. Com. Number, Number eight. eight. Yeah, we'll link to that from the site. And what what do you have up on the website? What's going on up there? Oh, the website is a bit obsolete now. It was really to um, further explain the class to people who had seen the flyers hanging up because uh-huh. obviously I I couldn't put all of the information on the flyer. So I decided to get a uh, website and then put all kinds of information about um, myself, and my background. Um, what the status of everything was at the time. Now it's got a picture of the building that we're in so people could find the place. Uh, I had requests up there for donations from other filmmakers if they wanted to donate any old equipment to the to, for our use. Mm-hmm. Are you getting any donations or anything like that? Um, the one really interesting donation I got is um, there's a guy who's from Canada or from a group in Canada, and um, they call themselves the Akatillo Group. Wow. And they have sent us their Super 8 film for the students to watch, and then in return, when we finish our class, we're going to send them our work to watch. So we're starting a visual uh, correspondence. Oh, that's that's cool. Where's that from? Where are they from again? Canada. Canada. Specifically, do you know? Or I uh, can't remember what part of Canada, but then he was showing his stuff in England, and so they said after they show, after they see the work there in Canada, they, they may take the students' work and bring it to England and play a cir- play it in a circuit there. The wow. website's worth going to for a couple of reasons. <clears throat> One of which being the great shot of you with the great hair. <laughs> That picture was taken in Pennsylvania. That's what it'll do to you. Be in Pennsylvania. <laughs> hey, hey, hey! Come on, John's wife's from Pennsylvania. That's My true. family's from Pennsylvania. I traveled through Pennsylvania once or twice. Oof! It's a, it's a tough, long haul, Pennsylvania. It takes it like is. six hours to get through the state, and my my lingering memory of it, of having gone through it. Literally dozens of times because pretty much any vacation my family took when we were children went south, which meant you pretty much got you're going through Pennsylvania. You're going through Pensy, <laughs> and my lingering memory of being on the interstates, which as Charles Corralt would say, are the roads to take if you want to see nothing. But when you're on the interstates, you just see coal mining equipment and coal mines all you know uh, at the hillsides and into the hillsides. I mean, truck kind of interesting. Stops. That's all I remember is truck stops. Well, every interstate has those. That's for sure. Something about Pennsylvania feels very unusual to me as I stare out at the 
trees that are on the hills there. It, something about the, those trees in the hills. Maybe it was that they were uh, clear cut and now they're all growing so close to one another it looks unusual. Well, ever since that volcano erupted, you know. Oh, wait a minute. Wrong state. <laughs> You're out of your mind. There are no volcanoes in Pennsylvania. I was down in Georgia coming back this way, and um, my car, the uh, transmission was failing me. And no, I was in Virginia, and my transmission was failing me. And I went to a mechanic, and he said, You're not going to make it through Pennsylvania because of those hills. <laughs> right, it'll, right. It'll kill it. Yeah, the, the car would probably just kill itself going through Pennsylvania. I want to steer the conversation a bit back to film. I got back from New York. I went to see film last night. Oh, did you go? To, you actually went? Yeah. And you look awake and alive. Yeah, I slept about 15 minutes. <laughs> and he looks like he got at least five, 30. six hours. <laughs> yeah. So tell us about that conference you went to. Um, I went down to see a group called uh, the Invisible Filmmakers. Uh, and it was, um, I think, titled Resistance Against... It is futile, <laughs> and they have cloaking devices. That's why they're invisible. Never mind. They did actually talk about invisibility and cloaking devices, and uh, it was uh, um, about the New World Order and the resistance against the uh, regime. And by regime, you mean? Uh, I think by regime, they're referring to uh, George Bush's administration. Yeah, I like it when people use that word to describe it, because they, his administration throws it around very liberally about governments that we have chosen not to like anymore. You know, mm-hmm. Iraq never had a government in, over the last three years. It was a regime. regime. Yeah. yeah. Rhetoric so, is beautiful. Yeah, it's, it's a kind of propaganda. And I like it when people refer to the Bush administration's government, his, his band of merry uh, incom- incompetence. As a uh, as a regime, but I like it when the propaganda goes around and then comes around. Yeah, definitely. So this this conference, what did they have going on down there? Uh, so they're fil- uh, playing all these different filmmakers' works that made uh, works that relate to kind of uh, what's going on politically. Right. Um, one film was called uh, One Dead in Ohio, and it was a piece that most of the shots were close-ups of the traditional 50 photo or however many presidents we're up to now but you know how there's that list of presidents that that they have with all the um each one has their own portrait portrait yeah and it's like that's how many stars there are on the flag right it's for the presidents so it's like 50 that's right we can't have any more that's right (laughs) or is it the 13 that's why uh bush is going to stay in power now right that's it. He's the last. But, yeah. Well, he's, they'll he's try to get laws. They'll no. try to get laws passed to make it so they can stay beyond two terms. I'm sure. He's going some... to be the king now, right? Or the emperor? Well, we've been. I've been referring to his, the George Bushes that we've had as King George since '88 when we got the first one. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, he certainly a... has no clothes. <laughs> yeah, the emperor's been long without clothes. Anyway, so so it's these um, close-up shots of all of those, and then the text is reading all this information about what had happened in Ohio to steal the election. Oh, that's great. And it's a great pun on Four Dead in Ohio, which was the Crosby, Stills, and Nash song after Kent State, right? Mm-hmm. That's sort of a little play on that. And um, also then it listed other presidents who had stolen elections in the past. And um, they mentioned Kennedy and two others, and I can't remember who they were. Well, I, I, John and I briefly touched on this. There was definitely some shenanigans, some chicanery, chicanery going on. I'd love to have that um, statistician on, the guy who authored, was the primary author of that PDF from Pennsylvania. I should right. email him and see if we can get him on. That would be good. That would be good. There's another interesting piece, the first piece that they started out with, it was um, 
where they took CNN news clips, or no, it was Fox News. They did Fox News clips, and they had the uh, each of the anchor people, and he'd say, uh, "Hey, Jan," or "Hey, Bill," to, as as they would uh, segue to their to their next reporter, and it just kept going back and forth with this uh, person saying, "Hey." To, to each of these different names until it became a musical rhythm. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> but the uh, image was completely sync with the sound, so the images kept flashing and changing as this turned into this uh, rhythmic sound, and then the, the just started to bring in all of the uh, fear-promoting fear, um, buzzwords that, that they would use. Yeah, I, I see these reports, and Martin and I have been going back and forth. You don't know Martin. But Martin and I have been going back and forth a little bit on his blog about the, the whole fear-mongering thing, you know? It's like any time you turn on the TV, and I rarely do that, but at work it's on in the lunchroom or the break room, and, you know, tonight at 6, killer rats and HIV, you know, and just spreading all this nonsense to keep us in, you know, in fear so we'll turn our power over to the government. Ooh, protect me, right. protect me. And they always have this 3D animated logo for whatever crisis is going on. With, with music. With music. With appropriately, mm-hmm. uh, you know, evil or sinister or sad-sounding music. You know? The right. music's really powerful, and it's uh, something that I think is uh, that goes unnoticed a lot. How much the music is steering the way that you are seeing what's happening in the news. Well, it's definitely a powerful medium. I mean, it can be used to express emotions just like every other art form. I mean, and when coupled with powerful imagery, powerful music, and a bunch of guys that you probably trust telling you what to think, unfortunately, and they could be the newscasters, they could be your congressman, they could be the president, mm-hmm. you're convinced, you know? And Big brother. It, so it's funny that, you know, the news always has this music that starts up that's like this heroic music like you're trudging off to war. Eyewitless but, News featuring Jim Brown. Da, 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 yeah, da. Yeah. With an eagle. There's always an eagle somewhere. Or like red, it, white, a flag waving. Isn't yeah. that the Fox? It's, it's ever present on the Fox channel. There's that mm-hmm. red, white, and blue flag waving up in the, one of the corners, you know? Yes, that's right. Why doesn't the news ever have like a, a piece of classical music to start the news out? Well, I think once upon a time they probably did, but the industry has has, has changed so much over the past thirty years. Let's say, uh-huh. you know, I mean, they do studies and they know what's effective, <laughs> and yeah. they're going to use what's effective if they have an agenda to push. And pretty much every network does, and every newspaper, certainly their owners do. You so know, guys all, like Murdoch and and whatnot. They're, it all comes down to marketing. Yeah, well, they, they do studies on all this stuff. Yeah, right? television's no longer about presenting the information. Well, it never really was about presenting the information. It was about selling soap. Yeah, yeah, it definitely was. I mean, at the end of the day, at, when you're dealing with a market economy, it's the number one job of an entity is to stay in business. So mm-hmm. unfortunately, you know, until we, we change our economy to the point where it's it's not a for-profit uh, economy, we're mm-hmm. always going to have this system, you know. But it, it's beyond just staying in business because no matter how much money some companies make, they're always Looking eager for more. and greedy to get more. They yeah. don't want to just sustain and they don't want to have a little growth. They want to have maximum growth at pretty much any cost, it seems. Well, I mean, that's the definition of a corporation. Right. They always I mean, have goals it, every it's quarter. It's in the charter. Mm-hmm. They have to have 13% growth every quarter or else they're going to fail. Yeah. And then and if, if, if they don't get that growth, the shareholders can uh, ask for resignations. I mean, now, Chomsky talks about this quite a bit. I know I've talked about Chomsky a little bit before. And he talks about the, the cyclical system, the, the systematic behavior of these systems and how they perpetuate themselves, you know? Mm-hmm. Kind of things like market economies and things like that, you know, and, and our government for that matter, mm-hmm. you know, corruption perpetuating itself. That, that's just so unsustainable, the idea that 
of continual growth because you can't continually grow. There's a finite amount of wealth in a world, and while you can and you a can, finite amount of resources, yeah, and you can grow wealth, you can you can generate wealth, but it tends to happen a little more slowly. And um, like you said, and John and I have used this word a lot on the program. Sustainability oh, is yep. the key when it comes to energy, when it comes to um, just every aspect of our lives. You know, the food we eat. You know. Mm-hmm. Uh, growing food you know we want sustainability that doesn't hurt the land mm-hmm. we want sustainability that makes food that isn't you know laced with uh pesticides and i mean there's there's a variety of reasons to, to choose for sustainability yeah and i'd love to see a, a corporation or a business or i love seeing it when a corporation or business doesn't have world domination as their ultimate goal i think that what people should do is start businesses to maintain themselves provide enough income for whoever's running the business and no more mm-hmm and that should be it. That should really be the goal, and to do good things and not kill people. Well, it's it gets down to we briefly touched on amending the corporate charter. That's right. You know? People like us, grassroots people, should be working towards amending the corporate charter, so that it, it at least it isn't such a, a gigantic greed-based institution. Because I mean, I've seen interviews with people who people who have interviewed all these CEOs, and when you sit down with them one on one, these guys aren't evil. Um, want to take over the world dictators, but the system they work in forces that kind of uh, behavior out of the institutions they work for, you know? Right. Well, if you look at some of the, the testimony that's going on in this Enron trial, that's what's really happening. It's coming out that the system is providing these, these boundaries, and we're talking about this in filmmaking. <laughs> the system provides these boundaries, mm-hmm. and the accountants are only working within those boundaries, and, and their job is to find the loopholes to make it so that they can make the most money, even if it's doing unethical things. Well, and they're not, they're, not even loopholes anymore. I mean, Congress is passing laws that are very, very... Uh, beneficial to corporations. You know, no, so I'm, that I'm they... talking about it specifically in this trial. They're talking about oh, fair, okay. yeah. fair accounting practices is what the guidelines are for the accountants. There aren't necessarily laws and 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 rules that they have to to abide by, other than you know, making sure that the numbers are not cooked. But they're they're using fair accounting practices for interpretation of the numbers. Right, right. And within those those confines, <clears throat> they're coming up with ways to present their numbers in the most positive light. Uh-huh. So what that what that provides is is a framework for people to do unethical things, but for the company they're beneficial, and those two things are not good when you put them in the same pot. Yeah, they don't make a good soup at all. It's pretty bitter. It's a bitter stew. So they're they're talking about because of the the Enron trial, they're talking about the outgrowth of this. Hopefully, is that instead of it just being some guidelines, that they're going to actually come up with some some real laws and some real rules for accounting that aren't just which won't be followed. Well, but at that point, at least you can prosecute them. Right now, my concern is that in the Enron trial, you might have some things happening that people don't like that leave a bad taste in your mouth, but you really can't prosecute them because there aren't laws on the, on the books to, to, uh, to prosecute. Right, right. I'm, I'm not familiar with what is the corporate charter? Um, it's a set of guidelines that describe... Um, uh, I mean, a corporation is an entity created by man. They it, conceived of this idea of a corporation. And is it, it a federal law? Um. How would you describe what the charter is? Yeah, I guess there are things that the, the that the, the the way the corporation behaves. It has to follow these rules, uh, you know, being accountable to the to the shareholder, you know, instead of being accountable to like you know the people of the United States and its environment and and you know mm-hmm. beneficial things. I don't. I, what is it? I mean, it's well, really. I, mean, I think that we use corporate charter in a, in a loose sense, right? To mean the the way that corporations are set up, corporate law, and the way that they live in society, they're, they're the way entities. they interact with society, right? They're yeah. entities in and of themselves that are not human beings, and right? The, and the entity, and they have rights of human beings. Actually, they, they do. They have legal rights, 
um, and they also have legal responsibilities. But beyond of, legal rights, they actually have. Uh, they talked about that in the movie The Corporation. I'm going to have to view that again because there are a few specific areas where they are accorded the rights that human beings would be accorded, and. A corporation is an entity. It's certainly not a person, you know? Right, but the corporation does have a responsibility, and one of the, the core responsibilities is to make as much money as possible yeah. for the shareholders of that corporation. Right. And within the laws of the nation that they're within. Um, but, again, those two things in conflict will always breed some unethical practices. Yeah. I just happen to have some writing here that my friend was... Um, coming up with about the stock market. Uh-huh. So that seems very... Apropos, appropriate? Apropos. Why don't wow. you read something? Synchronicity. This yeah. like rocks. I just brought this to read in case you guys weren't here when I showed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wasn't, but I wasn't here when I showed up, actually. All right. Let's see. The stock market. I wanted to get these thoughts down before I forget. I thought, how could I forget that 40 cents of every dollar I spend goes to pay someone's unearned income? Only by self-deception, because I feel powerless to change the fact that 20% of the world's population, those who have more money than they need, are collecting the, that 40 cents from the other 80%, and many of whom sleep on the ground. The other night, a friend, someone I think very well of, was lamenting a, a bad move he had made in the stock market. I reminded him that the stock market is immoral. It is one of those primary mechanisms by which one individual out of five can squeeze money out of the other four. The one squeezes because he believes God, nature, fate has created him to do so. The squeezer has been blessed, though he lives in fear and the army must protect his destiny with heavy artillery. Some people believe the Mexican hacienda system brought the revolution on itself by mercilessly bleeding the peons and undermining the country's resource base. The stock market does the same thing. It drives a system that bleeds people and the environment on a global scale, destroying social and natural capital at an unprecedented rate. I'm going to skip down to another part because I'm not going to read the whole thing. But So here I offer some advice to those who would like to help the poor. Do not give them with one hand a meager fraction of what you have squeezed out of them with the other. Sell your stocks, bonds, etc. till the uh, till the proceeds into the soil and earn your living by the sweat of your brow as you were meant to. Remember that you are a human being and accept death graciously when it comes your way. Yours, Beat Raven. And that's a friend of yours? Yeah. Oh, cool. Well, I, I agree with those words. Yeah, and it's basically saying the same thing that we've been talking about, is that you know if a corporation has as its goal to produce something that's valuable for society and to deliver that valuable thing to society... And to you know make a decent living for the people who are working for that corporation, then things will be okay. But what what he's saying in this this writing is, it's not okay unless you have forty percent growth or forty percent income on top of the thing that you've delivered. So, absolutely, right on. Yeah, I agree with that. I want, before we leave, I want to steer the conversation back a little bit towards um, um, films. Yes. I mean, on the whole, you're like a like a boatsman. You're trying to steer all the time. I'm just steering. I'm, I'm just crazy, silly whack. Um, on the whole, there's not. You're not a big fan of Hollywood filmmaking. You don't have like a favorite director. No, not in Hollywood. Um, well, who would be some of the filmmakers that you you do like? The filmmakers that I respect would be um, some of the first filmmakers I was exposed to uh-huh. as the work of Stan Brakhage, Maya Darren, Jim Otis, Ken Jacobs. Um, those are. 
some of the filmmakers. Rich is pointing to me. I, I've only <laughs> taken a, a few film courses. I've had some film studies when I was in, in college, but... Uh, you're not uh, familiar Bra- with any Bracken of those names? I've heard, but... Okay. Yeah. You can find some of these films if uh, a listener is in the Utica area. Uh, you could become a member of Munson Williams Library and uh, rent some of these films on DVD or VHS. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Right. Now, the, the film, um, when you went down to New York... Yes. Is there a website for them as well, I mean, that you could give us? Do you know it off the top of your head? No, I don't. It was held at the Millennium uh, Workshop. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. And I spoke with the person who programmed the show, and I'm trying to get um, the show to come here to Utica. Okay. So I'd like to play all those films somewhere here, possibly. Right. I'm thinking maybe the Kirkland Art Center could be a venue. Yeah, that could be cool. I'm open to any venue. And the the Canadian group that you're going to be trading with, do mm-hmm. you, are you familiar with their uh, website or anything? I'm really hoping the answers are yes. No. <laughs> well, we can get this information. Yeah, you can yeah we'll try to post offline, it on. Yeah. yeah, we'll try to post it on the. We'll get it and get it up on the entry for the show when we post it. And we do want to get some of your work online too. Do I have some time to speak more? Um, Absolutely. Sure. Okay. I was thinking about closing out the show, but I, I could see it. I could sense it. We're not going to cut you off. All right. Well, I left the Woody Allen movie, and uh, yeah, we both went to see um, uh, Match Point. Right. And not together. <laughs> You're not my type, really. And, uh, a little too short. but I was sitting in the front, and you were sitting on the side. And I always like to be in the center of the movie theater so that you see a square picture instead of a trapezoid. I understand. But I'm six foot three, and the sitting in the center, it's, wor- it's more crowded in those seats than an airliner, so I'm very uncomfortable in the middle. I need an aisle. Right. Well, and also, so I'm sitting in the center, and I'm getting itchy to leave, and uh, I'm feeling the pressure of... Uh, not wanting to d- disrupt everyone else's uh-huh. experience of the film, uh-huh. and the thoughts that are going through my head as well. You know, people have to go to the bathroom sometimes, and they get up and leave. Sure, it's not like I'm, uh, you know, trying to disrespect those watching the film. I'm just. And I, I think discomfort with the film itself is a, is a valid reason too. So you were that <laughs> repulsed by the film that you you wanted to leave? Yep. Okay. <laughs> Jeez, I thought he was going to go to the bathroom thing again. You know. So out of four stars, how many would you give it? <laughs> I'd leave. <laughs> well, there you go. He'd give it foot. I was looking for a, a hatch underneath my feet to crawl out through, but couldn't find it, so I had to make uh, people scooch back in their seats and stand up and get uncomfortable as I slinked down out of there. And as I got out of the museum, I ran outside and I jumped up onto that um, piece of slab uh, railing thing uh-huh. that's by where the stairs are. And I took a deep breath, and I raised my arms, and I felt liberated. He felt liberated. I, I didn't have quite as bad an opinion of the film as, <laughs> well, as Pete did, but uh, I, I didn't said it leave. was the best film of the year. Uh, I did not, <laughs> and I did not see Pete leave either, so we did a good job. I saw some people in front of me leave. But, I don't think it was Woody Allen's strongest work, as Woody Allen films go, but it was, it was, it was passable as a Woody Allen film. See, you know, one of my friends told me that he stayed um, till the end, and he said, well, you, really, you missed where, where the film picked up and got really good. As I was driving away, I was thinking in my mind, even if they showed me an experimental film after all this, it, I'd s- still feel robbed. <laughs> but well, there you have it. Mr. Allen, I believe you owe this man some money. Well, I mean, I think that there is some responsibility of the filmmaker to keep you in your seat. Right. You, you shouldn't have to wait for the payoff at the end. I mean, that's mm. a little bit unfair. Yeah, um, but when was, what was the last Hollywood narrative you saw that you liked? Uh... 
I can't remember. Okay. <laughs> so Pete, Pete might not be a good judge right. of a Hollywood narrative. You know, Pete's film reviews might not be the ones you want to <laughs> read if, if you like narratives. And see, I, did, I didn't give Woody Allen's film the full chance. Maybe it would have been good to sit through the whole thing. And well, I'm Act 2 definitely got more interesting, as it were. I'm not against films that, that um, hold out for a long time to produce a certain effect. But uh, Hollywood has shit on my head too many times for me to sit through it. And then if, if by the end of the film nothing good had happened, I would have just went home and wept. Can he say that? Can he say what? Wept? He, just, he, he swore. <laughs> Can he say that? You can't say that. On this show? Yeah. What? Can he Everything say on this show is fair game. All right. All right. Well, there you go. And I don't know. What do you think? You want to close it out? Yeah, I think you want wait, to cut Pete wait, off. Don't cut him off. I'm not going to cut him off. I said we cut him off. No, we, we can run out of time have, here. We can always have another show. I'm the guy who's got to edit this. <laughs> I think we should have a follow up with Pete. Let me tell you a quick story. Okay. <laughs> so I left. I left the place, and and uh, as I jumped up, it wasn't just like aha, I'm away from this film, but it was the liberation of overcoming. You know, the fear of disrupting everyone, too. It Societal was, pressure. It was as if you were Leonardo DiCaprio leaning out over the bow of a boat, <laughs> and you screamed, I'm king of the world! Uh, uh, anyways, I got in my car. <laughs> I, I, I'm feeling some discomfort. <laughs> <laughs> I got in my car, and I, I rushed off to Radio Shack, because I was like, I'm going to buy batteries for my camera, and I'm going to go film something great right now. Oh, okay. And so I rushed. Did you? I went to I went to Radio Shack and I got the batteries and then I remembered that one of my film students is also stationed in the mall across from where I was. I was by Sears and and they were all the way over by um, Target. 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 And uh, so I I said, is it worth it for me to walk through this mall to find this person? And I said, well, I'll run and I'll try to get in and out of here quickly. So I started running through the mall and then mall security jumped out and said, no running in the mall. Stop. And I ran past them, and I got to her store, and she wasn't there. And uh, so, so you were going to make a film with her that that night? Was that your plan? Yes. Did you make a film on your own? Oh no, not a film with her. No, oh. uh, she had questions that I needed to answer for her about the class. Gotcha. And so then, as I as I was coming back, the mall security came back, and they said, "We need to talk." And then I I just ran away again. You didn't need to talk to them. No. He was in like a uh, Python film. Run away! <laughs> Run away! There's absolutely no need to talk to security. Have you hurled a cow? Hurled a cow. Who's no. your favorite beetle? My favorite beetle? Oh, it used to be Paul, but now I'm thinking John. Yeah, yeah, for me it's John. John? I concur. Yeah, there you go. John's his own favorite beetle. Hey, Molly, you got any anisette for these guys' coffee? You got any anisette for their coffee? Never mind. All right. Well, yeah. I figured, you know, these I guys. With, I think these guys with all the vowels on their names might want some anisette in their coffee. Anyway, that's another show in the can, as it were. I certainly think we need a follow-up with Pete. I think we can work with Pete again, and we could probably come here and do another one. Would you be up for that, Pete? Sure. Remember, check us out on the web, www.bloodyveg.com. Send us feedback. Feedback at bloodyveg.com. Thanks, guys. Check out Pete on the web, www.openfilm8number8.com. Very good. Yeah. And we're going to try to get some of his work online, hopefully within the next week or two. Yep. Several links. And we're going to have all kinds of fun, and we'll, we'll have him on in the future again. And maybe, Molly, you'll have some anisette for your coffee or for your cinnamon-flavored warm water. Mm-hmm. Anyway, we'll see you next time. And remember, you're listening to V.I.B. V.I.B.